This is Place Matters, a podcast at the intersection of race, place, and poverty, where we explore the belief that the path towards ending inequity and promoting prosperity is through the work of holistic neighborhood development. Welcome to a special series focusing on the role of churches in their neighborhoods. During this series on Place Matters, we will talk to leaders, scholars, practitioners, and mobilizers who speak to the joys and challenges of inviting churches into partnership with their neighborhood. I'm Sean Duncan, the Director of Training and Consulting for FCS, and my colleague, David Park, one of our lead consultants, will be your host for this series of Place Matters. If you have been walking with us through this series on churches and their role in neighborhoods, Maybe that means you, like us, are convinced that this is core to what it means to be the church. But just because you're convinced that your church should be embedded in your neighborhood doesn't mean you know how or even what to do once you're there. The good news is that your struggle is not unique. There are leaders, practitioners, scholars, and advocates around the globe who are struggling with this same thing. And even better news is that there are resources and organizations that exist solely to help you navigate that challenge. And joining us today are two of our friends and colleagues from the Parish Collective, a global network whose simple mission it is to connect people to be the church in the neighborhood. Jose Humphreys III is the author of Seeing Jesus in East Harlem, What Happens When Churches Show Up and Stay Put. And Tim Sorens is the author of Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You Are. He has also co-authored the book, The New Parish, How Neighborhood Churches Transform Mission, Discipleship, and Community. Listen in as my colleague David Park and I talk to two men who've given their lives, calling, and careers to reminding churches that place matters. We want to have a conversation about the church and the neighborhood and uh, I couldn't think of anybody better to give us a sense of like, how does this play out across the nation in terms of uh, this, if there is a divide, what's the gap? And so, Tim, you're the, I couldn't think of anybody better to start this conversation with. And I was like, hey, can you invite a friend? And you were like, I got the guy. So, Tim, can you introduce yourself? And, and, we'll, and then we'll introduce Jose and then we'll, we'll, talk about Sean and me, and then we'll get it right, get right into it. Sure. Yeah. I'm really, really thrilled to be here, friends. Um, my name is Tim Sorens, and I'm the co-founding executive director of the Parish Collective. And it's a network of churches and faith communities and small groups, missional communities all over the country that are organized essentially around asking the question, how do we be the church in the neighborhood? And how do we join in the dreams of God in that place? So I'm thrilled to be here. And how did you, what, what made you bring in Jose into this conversation? Oh, I, I've, uh, there's like a thousand reasons. Um, Jose is, I think he ha, ha, is one of the finer uh, thought leaders, pastors in the country. He lives in a really unique uh, parish, you could say, neighborhood in East Harlem, which has a very long storied history, a lot of energy, a lot of transition and change. And um, I have been in hundreds of neighborhoods, but um, to be able to walk the streets of East Harlem with Jose 
uh, you can you can feel his love, his affection, his longing for God to be at work, um, bringing about shalom in that place. And he knows so many people, and he's brilliant. Um, and he's one of the people who. Um, Say more. Really, just keep uh, his I'm, face is saying. I, I could go all hour on him. I'm not kidding. Man, so, man, Tim, lay it out thick. Uh, the he, checks in the mail, Tim. The checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, here's this is for real though. We we I'm pretty convinced need more um, very grounded, pastoral, discerning mm, mm. postures like Jose. It's part of the reason I'm so grateful for him. Is he? He knows very clearly that all the ministry begins with listening, deep listening. And a, a, a phrase that he has brought to my life, which has been absolutely just foundational, is this idea of sacred uh, listening. Mm-hmm. Um, I just feel like those two words go together really, really powerfully. Um, so, yeah, he, he's incredible. Wow. I'll let him talk about himself. But he he, he is one of the great I think neighborhood heroes of our day. Wow! So we got we've got Jose's eulogy all set up from from you. So, <laughs> but, but if while I, he's yet if alive, I should, if I should go first, I know who will eulogize me. <laughs> if you get in a fight with your wife, Jose, I think you should have Tim just just up on cue, just be like, "Hey, you know, buddy, be there. you know what he said." <laughs> so, Jose, tell us about yourself then. Oh man. Uh, Tim is just, uh, I love Tim, you know, thanks for those generous words. And uh, Tim and I have become uh, just, yeah, really good friends uh, over the last few years. And I'm a proud member of the Parish Collective. I'm a fellow and so grateful for uh, just all of the generative discussions that we have on this kind of stuff about being church in the neighborhood. And when I was writing my first book, one of the things that I did was reference, uh, you know, Tim's book as well, you know, at the time. And I just so much of the language really resonated with me. And it's just when you find that other people are speaking the same language and, and the heartbeat of ministry is beating uh, in such a way that uh, you're finding all, all kinds of uh, synchronicity, synergy, you know, you, you got to be grateful, right? You got to be grateful to God for that moment. So, yeah, a little on me. I'm a, a native New Yorker, uh, born and raised here. Um, I'm in East Harlem. I co-founded a church. Uh, I would say about 16 years ago. Uh, it's a small, vibrant, multi-ethnic, multiracial church uh, that actually meets inside of a nonprofit. And that nonprofit is uh, Exodus Transitional Community, and they work with folks who are justice impacted. So, you know, at this season of, of uh, the life of the church, and I'll, I'll, this will be a brief intro, uh, we've been really explore, exploring this idea of neighborhood, that, that sometimes neighborhood is just a block. <laughs> especially in a city like New York, where uh, one block is one world, uh, which is very different from how I was thinking uh, 10, 15 years ago. So I'm so grateful to be here on this podcast and have this conversation with you all. Oh, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Sean, do you want to say a little bit about uh, why why we're doing this special series on church and neighborhood? Yeah, so we're, um, you know, part of a place-based neighborhood development organization. Uh, Many of our staff, including me, uh, have come out of congregational uh, leadership worlds. Uh, Many of our stories, the short version is like we wanted to do neighborhood stuff, but it was like the church was getting in the way of what we were wanting the church to do at some level. And like FCS became this brilliant 
outlet of say like we we can live this out not with like 10% of our job or like a side hustle this can be what we do every day is is see what it means to bring thriving uh, into historically disadvantaged neighborhoods how do how do we do that work uh, and so uh, we've been working on uh, through uh, kind of like with Tim the the Lilly Endowment Thriving Congregations grant is how do we take FCS's principles and getting into other neighborhoods and other communities? Uh, how do we help churches center the neighborhood rather than their own concerns and do this kind of work? Uh, and so we've been experimenting, which means lots of failure and learn lessons along the way so far. And one of the pieces we've developed out of that is just this podcast called Place Matters, where we're just trying to really promote that the, the heart of where equity and justice and belonging is going to come is at a neighborhood level and trying to get people who care about poverty, who care about racial justice, who care about all these really big things and say, like, let's let's bring this into a neighborhood level. Uh, and as we've been processing through that, we feel like everything we're talking about applies to churches and we want them listening in. Uh, but we definitely wanted to do a series of episodes where we specifically leaned in to those who are leading, working, living life from that congregational context. Like how how do they deal with what it means to become neighborhood rooted? Uh, and David is on our consulting team, but he is also leading a congregation that's in a parish uh, that's working to be a neighborhood rooted congregation. Uh, have admired him for well over a decade and just uh, just have wanted him to bring that gift, that that brain, that heart uh, to this to this work that we're doing. Thanks, Sean. I've admired you as well for over a decade. Um, the, the, the hard part about doing uh, parish work is, is that it, it feels like there's this gravitational pull away from parish, from, from local neighborhoods. It feels like, I, you know, regardless of the fact that I would love to have a community-oriented church, I get a lot of people who drive in. I get a lot of people who commute in on a Sunday and and the people that are often come on a Sunday are not the people who live there. And it includes me just because of some of the de- decisions we have to make. My wife and I have made for work and, and life and other school, all these other tensions. And it's not as dense as New York City. So it's I'm just wondering, like, here's my question just to start us off is should churches be in the neighborhood and what is their role in the neighborhood? Yeah, such an easy question to start off with, right? <laughs> oh man, well, there's so much. There's so much in that, you know. And I tend to think theologically, so right away I think about uh, the theologians we think about when we think about urban ministry and neighborhood. BB uh, King and you two, and uh, <laughs> when they they collaborated on a song some years ago, uh, and the title was "When Love Comes to Town," and mm-hmm. when love comes to town, what happens when love comes to town? And it, it's made me even reflect we're at the uh, beginning of Advent and we're reflecting and remembering and uh, liturgically uh, observing uh, this truth that hope broke through into our reality from heaven and moved in. Or as uh, was it, uh, the paraphrase in chapter one, Eugene Peterson, we all know this, right? Uh, the word of God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and uh so when i think theologically about these things i think that yeah this is jesus did this inhabited neighborhood inhabited village town synagogue had relationships with people all around and this is something that the church uh can follow suit with it's it's a pattern that we see very clearly uh how jesus is a very local uh Mm expression of heaven, if you will, uh, in in the community uh, in that time. So I, I would say that, yes, 
that it is necessary, it is important, and and there's a lot of complexity, uh, as you mentioned, Dave, with commuter patterns, et cetera. I used to be a lot more judgmental of that stuff before, more of a purist, I should say. Uh, mm-hmm. But my, you know, my thinking is kind of unfolded on some of those things. So, yeah. So, how how did you become less judgmental, and like, what are some of the barriers there that churches face? Because I I would like to also become less judgmental. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I had some great mentors, you know, Ray Rivera, who's uh, founded the Latino Pastoral Action Center, and, and of course, Perkins and, and, and other folks who, you know, for years have been talking about be, being a local expression and recognizing that even from some of the OGs, so to speak, uh, you know, there are complex dynamics in a, in a neighborhood. I'll start with the, the one that I've heard recently. If, if somebody's been doing a ministry in a neighborhood for 35 years, and it's a neighborhood that's uh, lacking resource, has all kinds of challenges, uh, it can be tiring. And there might just be a time when it's just like, hey, I'm gonna you know, commute in from the suburbs, uh, but I need a space of sanctuary. Like that, that's one that I've heard more recently and I've come to respect. And there are times when I need about three months away from New York City myself. So uh, I, I totally get it. Uh, commuter patterns. Commuter patterns in many ways, like that's, you know, people commute to work. People uh, commute all different places. We're we're a migrant nature, uh, a nation and a migrant uh, community in many different ways in terms of our habits. So when we talk about local expression and slow church, et cetera, I think we often underestimated how that really requires a different kind of formation. And mm-hmm. a, 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 a whole restructuring about how we think about time, space, place, uh, rhythm. So it, it's not an easy, I, I think, and I think it's worthy of, of more and more conversation that everything in our uh, construction of cities, uh, communities really speaks to people constantly being on the move. And, and so that's, that's difficult. That's a difficult tide to stem. Yeah. And it makes it like, uh, uh, I'm wondering, so you mentioned earlier, like the, the, the kind of restorative nature bound being, being around people who speak the same language, right. That you can be in a room, let's say Tim, David, we, we could talk about the, the, the virtues of place and being rooted in neighborhood. We, we would all get it. Uh, but to call congregations to be placed, is asking them to like buck every fundamental assumption about how life <laughs> works, right? I mean, but as you just mentioned, like there's 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 nothing asking people living in the United States to be placed. It is almost like a you don't even see it, right? Like, I mean, I, I think if we could see it, the Bible would start reading very differently. Like, because I think place is all through Scripture, but you don't even notice it because you're we're such a displaced culture. It's not even a factor in the equation, right? And so. So my question is, for the people who don't speak the same language, how do you justify, because of all you're up against, why is it worth trying to become this placed neighborhood-rooted congregation when you're going to have to go against kind of all other trends of lifestyles in our kind of modern moment? I can take a shot at that. I think um, you are so right, Sean, and I think we could probably all agree that there are dozens, maybe hundreds of very, very strong forces and stories that would tear us apart, rip us apart from a more deeply local, embodied, relational way of life. There's all kinds of reasons, and it it might be helpful to get into that. 
but underneath it, as it relates to what it means to be the church, a question that a bunch of us keep asking all the time is, aside from Sunday mornings or the gatherings that we have, the liturgies, which are really, really important, so this is not to um, take a shot at that at all. It seems to me anyway, and I think a whole host of friends, there's a, there's a big question right now as to what is the church even for? And if we can't begin to get after that question, which of course is disputed and people have different perspectives on, if we can't wrestle with that, then our local life or being in a neighborhood might not even matter that much. So where do people go on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening? Honestly, I care a lot less about that. Again, it matters. But the thing that I'm constantly thinking about and in some ways what gave rise to the parish collective is this question of like well literally where where is the church on a tuesday morning like if you could just frame freeze in a neighborhood where are all the followers of jesus what are they doing what do they care about what do they love how are they being formed do they know each other um and the question largely is, no, for all those same reasons that, that keep us apart. But that doesn't mean that we're not, <laughs> yeah. I mean, all over the place. I mean, it's, yeah. it's actually kind of mind-blowing when you think about, for everyone listening in right now, whatever neighborhood you're in, whether you're at work, at school, you know, if you're driving, I guess that's a bit more complicated, or jogging. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, Obstensively, there probably are what, 2%, 5%, maybe even 10% of Christians all around you who would totally raise their hand and say, I am trying to follow God in the way of Jesus. Like my Christian faith matters a lot to me. And yeah, I really do love my neighborhood and I want it to be better. I want, I want my, my neighbors to flourish and, and thrive even. I, I want to belong in a place that does promote justice and equity. I don't, I don't want to keep living according to these like stories of and histories of oppression. Of course, I want to be a small part of that change. Mm. Imagine if, you know, a neighborhood of 10,000, yeah, 10% go up. That's, that's a thousand people. That's a, that's a mega church right there. That <laughs> probably is effectively invisible to us. Mm. And the only way that I know how we could ever conceivably get to know each other is if we begin to ask some new questions and that's ironically where, from what I've seen, starting with the church question, like how do we even be a neighborhood church, might not be the very best first question. I think it's a fantastic question. But I think if we begin with what is God up to, what does God long for, what does God dream about, what does shalom look like here, we ask that with some other people, I think that might give us the pathway to discerning well, mm. what would it mean for us to be and become the church in this place? Easier said than done. But can you kind of feel, I mean, there's a bit of a mm -hmm. difference there between what could be a, honestly, like international revolution of people pursuing the hopes and dreams of God versus what can feel sometimes like rather tepid decisions about where we may or may not go on Sunday and what in the world does that even mean? That second question, it does matter, but I don't think it's gonna get us to where we need to go and where we need to go is where God is. And that's always embedded in a place. Well, 
this would be a short episode, but we could stop right there. I mean, uh, I, <laughs> I, I do think, I think this is sort of a new perspective, at least for me. And I, you know, I've been in, uh, uh, parish ministry for over over 12 years. And I, I find that this paradigm shift, for some reason, even though intellectually, cognitively, I understand what you're saying, sometimes when I get back in the driver's seat, I'm like, what did he just say? What does that mean? Which, which is really weird. Like, I, I've noticed that there's this learned stupidity that as I've, as I've learned to lead, there's a stupidity that sort of sets in, set me straight. Like, how do we go about being recovering, orienting around place again, then? What, what are some of the first sort of, where's, where's my North star? How do I go about, uh, finding my North? Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. And I've been thinking about the questions, the, the questions uh, themselves, and we need to ask more of those. Uh, Tim's absolutely right. And mm. what is the church for is, I think, a really good mm. first question. Uh, the the other thing I've been contemplating even more, right, in all, in all the years of experience here in my own neighborhood is how are we attuning to the data that we receive from our neighborhoods? And oftentimes when we say data, right, I have Columbia University uh, west of me and Union Theological Seminary. I'm not talking about academia. I'm talking about, you know, the heavenly data. And and when we think about, it, you know, our, our truths about who God is and and how God is and what God is drawn to. If you, we, if you read the scriptures uh, a specific type of way, at least in the way that I read it is that God is, is drawn to vulnerable people people on the outs, people whose backs are against the wall. So that's also a good starting point. Uh, I, I've been I've been listening to a lot more of that, and it's been a, a challenge to me because it also interrogates my own dreams, the dreams that I've been handed down uh, by certain pockets of, you know, evangelicalism and, uh, or wherever it might go. It could be, you know, corporate business uh, fields. And, and I think... There are tools that we can use, of course, uh, to, to help us assess communities uh, that the church didn't invent. Uh, but that that question of interrogating the dream and, and also listening to what the neighborhood has to say in terms of what's needed here, that's a wisdom we often overlook uh, in the name of you know professionalism. I, I, I live in my neighborhood and I recognize uh, that though my name is Jose, I mean, if you just shout out my name on one square block, you'll you literally have about ten Jose's just <laughs> turn around and and say hello or, or just wonder what's happening. Uh, but I also recognize that I do carry some some privileges and gifts that were given to me, some blessings, if you will, around you know whether it be education. I'm married to uh, a professor and, or who's a researcher and who's also Latina, is Latina, and and so we we bring these gifts into the community. Uh, yet we don't also want to superimpose what we think should be happening. So uh, you mentioned, Dave, you know, yeah, what is it that I need to learn? I think part of uh, the journey is asking what it is that we also need to unlearn. And and I think that those are two concurrent pathways, two simultaneous pathways. Well, we're receiving the data, uh, we're collaborating, we're neighboring, if I could use that as a verb, and and then and we're also unlearning 
which me also means interrogating, uh, which also means looking at ourselves and what we bring and, 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 and think about what are the barriers and obstructions that keep us from connecting with our neighbors. Hey guys, just jumping in real quick to say that we would love to take your church and local partners through our two-year cohort process called City Shapers. The cohorts that are launching this year will be funded partially by Lilly Endowment, so it's a great time to get involved. We have had three communities go through this process so far and would love to bring it to you next. So contact us today to learn more at fcsministries.org. Hey, you guys, I, I love the this framing around like learning and formation because uh, I, I think, Tim, what you said about the question, how the questions quickly devolve into these like tepid decisions that just seem to just it's like banging our heads against the wall, chasing our tails or something uh, that it is much more f- um, fundamental to the identity, not just like you know, where are we setting up our programs or where do we go to worship or what is our, like, I think we get caught in all of that and it kind of ends up, even if we make different decisions, we're still kind of boxed in by the same mindset. So like, what are some of the practices that form people to be different, that really form places or form people whose theology is rooted in place rather than just some sort of like conceptual world, right? Like what, what have you seen as being those, those forces of formation that really change people to be these rooted, placed, neighboring uh, individuals? There's so many, I think, Sean. Um, and I, I won't go too far because Jose has got a bunch of incredible um, responses to this question as well. With some of the practices that I think matter most, I mean, there's, we live in an attention economy, arguably right now, like um, most of us have these little supercomputers in our pockets, which um, are constantly vying for our attention. Life is pretty busy. And I think the more that we can cultivate and create practices of attention in our, our actual lives, in our ordinary everyday lives, which does sometimes require us to slow down, you know, more human scaled kinds of practices like walking as opposed to driving when possible or um, stopping and really trying to pay attention. That actually is rather countercultural, but I forget who said this exactly. I think John Don or some of that, but I'm not, well, I'll Google it later. But a phrase that I think is instructive for us as we think about practices for how to be the church in the neighborhood and, and how our attention could shift is that we do become what we behold. That's the phrase. And um, that's got, you can take that in a whole bunch of directions. If what you're beholding is the ecosystems of your neighborhood, the characters within it, the histories, the gifts, the blessings, and yes, the pain, the injustice. If you can behold that ideally with others, it's going to shape who you become. And if you see yourself as removed from that place, or you see it as effectively a commodity, um, that's going to shape who you become too. And so 
I think this is an invitation from Jesus to, um, I don't know how we can practically be disciples of Jesus without a couple of fundamental things. I don't know how we could do it outside of our everyday lives in real places. I don't know how we can do it aside from being dependent on God's spirit and not just in a Sunday school way, although I'll take it however you can get it. Um, but truly like having that be an active conversation. And I don't think we can do this without one another. I mean, that goes back to the, like who else is around us? Like I, um, we are also living in such a profoundly individualistic culture. And so some of these questions of who's with me and what is God doing and how am I being shaped? I mean, th these are practices which interestingly might be some of the most missional questions that we can ask begins with formation right now. Like, God, who do I need to be and become and who do I need to be with in order to be a part of what you're doing? That's not like a, it's hard to like make that the hard charging, you know, we're going to change the world manifesto, but I do believe it. I do believe it's true. Yeah, that, that, that was powerful. Thank you, Tim. I feel like I got my sermon for the week right there. You know, that's powerful. Uh, and, and in that light, uh, I think about liturgy in terms of how do people who are institutionally minded when it comes to the church, going to ask the questions that Tim is describing, the, the missional formation questions. I think leadership has a lot to do with that. So there are certain aspects of parish ministry that are collective, but we're, what, we're asking these questions together. So it's also a contextual reality, right? Some institutions, Lord, uh, lend, uh, lean more collectivistic. Others are going to have one leader or two, or maybe a team kind of shape those questions. So I, I recognize the uh, sensibilities behind that. Uh, and I also think about my own role as a pastor. What are, what are the things that helped some of these concepts and practices stick? And for me, it had a lot to do with litur liturgy. You know, how does liturgy inform our social reality? You know, so whether I'm, I'm on a mic, on a pulpit on a Sunday, or I'm meeting in a small group or in a cafe, in a living room, there are opportunities to shape liturgy in such a way that people are formed. What scripture texts are we reading? Is there an attention to place, as you mentioned, Sean, right? When we read the text, sometimes it we're not even uh, connected with this notion, this idea of, of, of place and the reality of it and how it does change everything. And when I think about the benediction, something like that, what are, what are we charging? Uh, to use a, that, that metaphor, or what are we inviting? I like that metaphor. What are we inviting people into? And I think there's opportunities there to even shape some of uh, people's discernment about how to live in neighborhoods. Where are we shopping? How is my dollar circulating in the ecosystem? Uh, who are my neighbors? Like literally, like who are my neighbors? Uh, the ones next door in, in this building of 128 apartments where I could go a whole year without seeing someone, right? Because of the, the pace of New York City. So uh, I think there are real uh, liturgical opportunities to come back to the table, 
that slows us down. And then also, what is our quality of presence at the table? Are we just eating a meal or are we using it to have conversations that matter? And I think in, in, in that, uh, we, I don't want to underestimate the power of conversations, formative, generative conversations, where we are living those questions and maybe not seeing the results of our quote unquote interventions, even in our lifetime, but recognizing that this is about signs and wonders. Are we seeing glimpses of the kingdom through the church in, in this moment that we find ourselves in? through our faithfulness or our faithful presence as the parish uh, folks, as we call it. So, yeah. Um, I was going to say, I love that so much, Jose. And um, I've definitely seen, I, I wouldn't call this like happening all over the place, but you know how I was just created human beings. We're not the creator, which means that we don't, see things from the universal to the particular, you know, we're not God. We have limits and bodies and that's actually a gift. And so the, the best way that we can make sense of things is from the particular, their bodies in places. And then we can kind of piece things that are feel more universal. Does that make sense? So when we, when we uh, think through some of our liturgical practice and things that we do in, in, in uh, on Sundays, I've found it to be a really interesting, at least experiment, um, to take maybe that next step as it relates to images or words um, which connect either the text or the song or the liturgy or the poem or the prayer or certainly the sermon with real, I mean, appropriately, real people, real streets, real images. You know, like how many songs have we all sung? And there's nothing wrong with this where like on the visual background is like, a starry night or a, a gorgeous forest or whatever. And that's lovely. But put that same song and just take a snapshot of the intersection that's three blocks down. What does that do to us? How does it feel different? Um, it probably will. And actually, it might make us a little bit more uncomfortable, right? Um, and sometimes that might be a gift. And so especially for folks that are leading churches right now, this is like, almost topical compared to the depth of what Jose was talking about. But I think it's pretty interesting to like think through what we do liturgically. Most importantly, what Jose was saying, think about how does this shape us to who we need to become throughout the week, of course. But then there are some, I think there are some ways that we can experiment that people actually begin to sense it and feel it in their bodies. And it might be a little bit even jarring, but I think that could prom prompt interesting conversations because we don't worship a just abstract, only universal, completely remote God who only lives in the sweet by and by, and we're just left to figure it out here. No, God is with us. God is here. And the more that we can begin to pay attention to that and name it and see it and kind of encouraging it of each other, I think the the better we'll all be. It makes me think about how the, when we ask this question, what are the practices that lead to this formation? And some level it's like, well, they've been around for a couple thousand years. Maybe we just ought to start using them again. Uh, where um, I remember it coming as a great shock to me at some point, having 
been in church, you know, nine months before the day I was born, you know, like I, I was in it all the ways, you know, like when I first was presented with the idea that like communion, like they had real bread, <laughs> like, and like real wine. And they, they were around a whole, they were around a table, probably in somebody's house. I was like, that is not this, like what we call Eucharist communion, whatever your tradition calls it. Like, I'm not going to like, downplay that practice but that is a that is a different spiritual mechanism than a table where bread is literally broken and life is being shared together and i, I and i wonder how much different and even that or even like baptism like baptistries weren't in where they met for congregational life like it would have been like your local stream like like at some level like when the the practices of our liturgy we're pulled out of the earth right around us, you know, and are, and like we're not facing either a wooden cross or a stained glass cross, like all forward there. Like we're facing faces. It just seems like something different is going to come out of us, right? Even without, even if we taught all the same things, like if we were facing each other, breaking real bread, you know, the water poured over us is from right outside the door. I mean, it just feels like all, all of a sudden we're, we're going to become different people through, through something like that. I don't know if you could go to the natural bodies of water in New York City and, and do that. Let's say I could be wrong, but I, I'm just. You could open up a hydrant and just stand in front of it. You there, know, you go. there you go. Open, I'm a proponent know. of alternative practices. Yeah. But what I do love about what we're saying, though, is that there's a certain inefficiency, a certain slowing down to the point of reevaluation, re recontextualization, uh, renaming some of these things that are that that may have been around for a thousand years or more, but need to be sort of grounded in real people at a real speed, a real pace of life that is uh, more pedestrian and uh, I, I really love the idea and it but it's also challenging in the sense that, you can't just change one element and not have it somehow either critique the other parts of the system and maybe even challenge the whole system. And I guess it's, it's, it can be threatening, right? To, to say that we're going to reorient our church around neighborhood or towards neighborhood and, and orient to this different speed, different sort of tactile embodied faith, which I think you've really eloquently stated to him. I guess, what are some of the things, to your point earlier, Jose, is like, what's maybe some of the, the things that we unlearn, like specifically have to unlearn? You know, church, of course, is theologically a people assembled, right? And we also know that church is an institution. And, and that has its values and merits. So when I think about the, the role of institutions, how institutions can connect to other institutions much easier than, say, a group of people or uh, interface with government entities, right? Yeah, I, I still believe in the, I guess, the 501c3, right? The, <laughs> the, the need for, for those interfaces to receive funding, etc. Uh, the problem is when we become institutionally minded and to the point where we lost our ability to be nimble. We have lost it in, in many different ways. So, so think about that. That's a multi-layered reality. You have churches, the institutions, 
you have churches that are part of larger institutions called denominations and so forth and, and so forth. And, and there are tracks and channels of communication between those two and how uh, marching orders, so to speak, are, are passed down and how knowledge and content and missiology and theology is passed down and, and rarely passed up. We don't see enough of that, right? You know, the information coming up from the grassroots. So it, it really has me thinking about how it takes very long for institutions to actually change. That's just the nature of it. And I really try to stop fighting that. As when, when people talk, think about cultural change, <laughs> that's the buzz, right? Culture change. I was like, do you really know what you're saying here? Do you, do you know the, the amount of unlearning and the, just the reinstitution of, of practices and the, the reclaiming or the shifting of identity? terms of how you see yourself in the community where you're no longer centered let's start there uh we're used to the church right uh historically churches were like the tallest buildings in a city right steeples rose the highest and now you have of course uh development and industrialization and so just even accepting as an institution as a church that we are no longer central to neighborhoods is a really good point and place to be able to grieve. And it's also an opportunity to say, okay, well, historically and biblically, the church has always done really well when it was scattered about into different places because it could be that the spirit and the spirit's wisdom did not want this codification into this extreme. So on a practical level, uh, I, I think if there was a case for uh, planting uh, ministry expressions, uh, house churches, etc. This would be it. And and so I don't see it as either or. I think that there is room, and I've, I've spoken to Tim about this in, uh, yeah, a whole bunch of times. There's room for the institution still to play a role, but I, it needs to be decentered. It no longer needs to be the flagship, but part of the fellowship and the ecosystem of a neighborhood and ask itself, what are now uh, expressions of church that we can get behind? So now we, we become a part of this wondrous ecosystem. We're not actually separate and apart, or we didn't send them off somewhere. Sometimes our language, right? Uh, but really we're just saying, no, we're, we're, we're represented in, in different parts of this ecosystem and we're connected, tethered different parts of the root system. And I could keep on about the root system, but I, I think that's just at least one response to the, some of the institutional realities that I'm seeing on the ground. That makes me think, Jose, that, um, and we should, if we have time, we should come back to the root system because Jose's stuff on that is brilliant. But um, this is maybe just my limited story, but it seems like we're in an era within the life of church and in our neighborhoods where, um, on the one hand, there's maybe this mythical nostalgia for when we were at the center of things and this desire to be, pick your, you know, pick your adjective, back in power or relevant or cool or like whatever. Um, and I think clearly that's not a nostalgia that we should yearn for, but um kind of holding on to power and being at the center and being arrogant with it. 
There is a flip side to that though, too. Um, so if the one side is like, we kind of got puffed up with pride and, and are arrogant, there is a, an underside to that, which is also not helpful, which is effectively rooted in shame, which is no, no, no. Like we have no, you know, our Christian identity doesn't matter. We're just like, we don't matter. Our story doesn't matter. We're embarrassed about ourselves. My wife, Cote, often thinks of the church as like a really beautiful, um, like pre-teenage girl who doesn't know she's beautiful, you know, like, um, and that somewhere in between there, and I don't know if it's exactly the middle, but there's, there's a tension there of like, we still steward those of us who are still seeking to be the church or are still following, following Jesus. Like this is a life changing story and reality. And there are so many gifts that even the tradition of the church gives us. Anybody who's ever been to a hospital <laughs> or a school or, I mean, on and on and on can be really grateful actually for the church. And we have to figure out where's the faithful way forward that's not rooted in kind of the arrogant nostalgia of we want to be the cool kids or we want to grasp onto power or whatever. But also, I, if we just kind of melt and shrink away, Honestly, that doesn't serve us. And it honestly, especially doesn't serve our neighbors. I'm pretty convinced of that. Um, who else but the local church even has a story of the common good where everyone belongs and everything matters. And there's a story where this God, whether you believe in this God or not, is wanting to restore and renew everything and tells us to forgive each other 70 times seven and prioritize the needs of those whose back against the wall, as Jose said, and consistently are saying, no, 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 there's not like male or female or Jew or Gentile. You know, there's one big family, y'all. We have to figure this out together. There's, I don't know where else to turn to, honestly, uh, for myself and that story. So we have to figure out how do we cling to that story and in a sense, like, be really grateful for it without using it as a weapon. And that's way more art than science, but it feels really important right now. I was just reading earlier this morning, I don't know if this, who said this also, maybe it's just kind of a cliche, but the, the breakdown always precedes the breakthrough. And I do feel like there's something of that for the church right now. Like it feels like breakdown everywhere you look. It, it's kind of scary and kind of depressing. And maybe, maybe God is there too within the breakdown. And maybe something is emerging that could be really beautiful. Whether we see it in our lifetimes I don't know. I'm absolutely with Jose that we need to do stuff that our kids and grandkids and great grandkids might be talking about. But I also think that's just a, it's a more beautiful way to live. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about this initiative we're a part of for, for thriving congregations. Uh, and I, I think uh, for many, that would that would mean doing that nostalgic piece like how, how do we how do we prevent the continued breakdown and like duct tape this thing back together and hold on for our dear lives and somehow reinvent something that we could all critique and i have instincts to do that but won't uh and like i think where we're wrestling is i think i'm i think we're we're with you like we we want the breakthrough right 
I'm not stressed out by the breakdown. Sometimes I'm too happy about it and I'm just rude and need to be a nicer person, you know, because I'm like, you should die. That's terrible. You know, and I'm like, okay, good. calm down, calm down, calm down. Uh, you know, um, but it's like, what do we mean by, by thriving on the other side of this, right? Because thriving as we knew it is not what we're talking about. Uh, and I could receive every grant from now until the end of time, and I'm not going to rebuild that, right? Um, uh, even I wanted to, which I don't, but I couldn't, right? Um, and so like what, you know, David and our team and, and we're wrestling through is like, as we're trying to work with congregations and we're working with communities, um, we're definitely seeing, I mean, we've been, one of the research projects we did in, in partnership with Barna was like talking to church leaders about in their conception of a, being a thriving congregation, does it have anything to do with their connection to their neighborhood? David, would you like to shock them with the results of that uh, that that, <laughs> that survey that we did? This is going to be completely out of the blue, guys. You um, ready? <laughs> well, and these are just the initial results. So I, we're going to have another episode where we actually talk to the to some of the smarter people who designed the survey and they implemented the survey. But so far, there doesn't seem to be, there seems to be a negative correlation between a church thriving and their relationship to the neighborhood. So mm. it's like, mm. why, why is it that, like I said, a negative correlation, right? So they don't have to know their neighbors to be a thriving church and the neighbors don't have to know the church to be a thriving neighborhood. So it's like, for most of, at least of our, uh, survey respondents that seems to be a predominant theme wow no relationship yeah I'd, I'd love to know like what's the criteria for a thriving church in the in the survey yeah. you know that's just a question yes. I have, uh in order to create that kind of disparity uh, right wow well and you know it, you know anecdotally or at least some of the ways we think about churches they care about the people who come through their doors. So once you, you know, once you're inside, man, we're gonna pour on you and just love on you. But the idea that it has much relationship to where they are, I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's a strong. Yeah, and whether you frame that as like where the building is in that neighborhood, or all the neighborhoods to which people go back and commute to, like for the majority of people that participate, it doesn't mean it's a majority of Christians. Uh, the connection between being a thriving Christian or being a thriving church has so little to do with your your place in your place. neighborhood. I mean, I would I would challenge that definition. Like, I would want to push back, like, well, that ain't thriving then, you know. But but at least their mental model for what it means to be a thriving believer or to be a thriving congregation uh, does not include reference to neighbor, right? Um, Right. But I'm trying to be like I'm trying to be like Jose. Like I'm trying to hate the hate the game, not the player, right? Like so, yeah. if cities are designed, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. That is like Jose. That is well said. I just made him. I want to be like him. But if most <laughs> churches can't help the fact that cities were designed for cars and not pedestrians. Churches can't unless they're city planning. There's no city planning churches. But to but, you know, you know, and I think New York City maybe benefits from the density of neighborhoods and, you know, maybe the design of cities are different from from places like Atlanta and places like, you know, other other places right there, L.A. or San Francisco. They're, they're designed in such a way that make us that divide us and then and then to try to create a church that brings us together and then centered around places is almost working against 
you know, we, we can't do it. We don't have the right elements. We can't make that recipe. Yeah. You know, what we're talking about here is a total reorientation around how the church sees itself. And, and if we don't reckon with that, how do, what is the church for? The question that we began with, if we don't reckon with that. Uh, what is it? What is it for? Then these paradigmatic shifts will feel consistently unnatural. <laughs> and, and they will, because it's rowing against the current. It really is. And so it's so interesting. I, you know, I've talked about this more around race and, and class. Uh, but I think it also applies to how we do church and how we are the church. Uh, our discipleship, our formation does not take into consideration often disorientation, that this is going to look a whole lot messy and and, and that there has to be a, a good Friday before we get to a resurrection Sunday, that there has to be, uh, as they say in the church, the, the glory before we get into the glory in some ways, right? And, and I think that it's not until we begin to dismantle structures and ways of thinking and challenge ideology. And this will be a small percentage of that large uh, collective of churches that we're talking about. But there will be, right? It's, you know, because if, you know, is that 10%, is that, that 15 to 20% that can, I think, uh, effectuate a, uh, some sort of tipping point, catalyze something. People, and when people see it, because that's always been what the church is. It's a visible expression of, of God's intention on earth as it is in heaven. When people see that, then that's how the church has historically got people to just pay attention to what's happening there. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful in that sense, but I'm, I'm not this, like, it's not like this Pollyannish uh, optimism. It, you know, it's, it's uh, taking a realistic assessment. And then once... <laughs> When things have, broke, have broken down and we're ready to live differently, not just do differently, two different things, right? Live differently, think about these things differently. Then I, I really do think that there will be a reclamation of identity about what the church is and who the church is supposed to be. So I think that's wonderful that you said like there's this, there's this growing tide of people that are trying to live differently and think differently about the church. Uh, Tim, as you've been a part of Parish Collective, do you see that sort of like silent majority or silent minority growing in terms of like, we want church to be different and what's the rate of change you feel like is coming from what you've seen? Because you've been doing Parish Collective for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to say honestly, because um, the parish collective is sort of unique in that it has become something of a national organization or ministry, but the only way that it makes sense is in kind of like neighborhoods within cities. So like, uh, sort of ironically, it's so fun to be talking to y'all because, which I say on purpose, because we have, I know we have very few connections to the Bible Belt of the United States. Uh, so much of our time has been spent in the Pacific Northwest and the West Coast. And, and so there are actually completely different, you could say ecclesial and movemental realities between say the Seattle region and greater Atlanta or New York City and Miami or Wichita, Kansas or et cetera, et cetera. 
I mean, context truly is everything. But I think what you could say is if you climb up on the balcony, looking down at the dance floor of American Christianity, what you can generally see is a whole lot of people and not just young people who are departing from the system that they've grown up with for a whole host of reasons. This just is not working anymore. We don't get it. And we're tired to, of being told, like, just get in line. I feel like that story is ebbing and what could be happening. So I, I, that is growing. I think there is a, a really interesting remnant of those folks who are kind of departing that main system. And I don't mean leaving the institutions or even leaving the congregation who are just like, we just don't want to do the status quo anymore. Um, they still might be elders. They might be pastors. They might be very faithful leaders for decades. But I think there is a clamoring chorus that's saying there's got to be a, another way. And then that way is not a new technique. That takes us back to what we've been talking about. It's like, unfortunately, it's not just like, well, you know, as much as I want people to read um, Jose's book, just that book alone won't solve it all. Although they should be it's both his books. Um, or anything that I've written or anyone else. Um, it's definitely going to be a chorus of us, which is why the collective matters so much to any way of re reclaiming what it can mean to like live in the parish. Uh, we're going to need to figure this out together. So is there a movement there? Yeah. And it's especially going to grow when people, and this is core to how we understand how the parish clips can grow. Movements, if there is going to be one, it's always going to grow when people who feel like they're alone discover that actually they're not. That actually these longings that you have or these impulses or what you think that God might be doing, you might feel kind of on the edge. You might feel like you're the only one. You might feel that the only person in your neighborhood, your congregation, your city, your denomination, et cetera, et cetera, in your family of origin, you're not. And when you find your people, that's, it's like raw power. It's like, yes, I'm not like, maybe I'm not so crazy. And I'm betting that there are way more of us in that world than we know. And I have a bit of a, uh, skewed filter because thanks be to God, I get to meet a lot of those people. And sometimes they come to us being like, Hey, wave my hands. Well, we think we're a part of you. We're like, well, come on. And it is, I gotta say, like, there's always more work to be done to be, to be like widening the table. But I can say at least from like kind of a theological and denominational perspective, wildly diverse. I mean, the most progressive mainline and not the most, maybe, but quite progressive mainlines and quite conservative Pentecostals and evangelicals are departing their systems around the same times, asking very similar questions and wanting to go on very similar journeys with then unique gifts to bring, you know? Um, so an Episcopalian in New York has a very different gift to offer than um, a, a, a small... Um, family of folks who just came up through Mexico from Guatemala and are, are a Pentecostal church in the east side of LA. I mean, very different gifts, but we need them all. And if they're asking some of the same questions, I think we can feel some of the same resonance and energy. And then I think we have something like a movement. Man, that is so exciting. Uh, man, I get so jazzed from hearing that. And to hear you say that makes me feel a lot better because you see, you, you know, you have a 
uh, like you said, you're on the balcony overlooking the dance floor of American Christianity, which is, man, that is, I just love that imagery right there. I didn't know it was a dance floor. I thought it was a horrific battlefield. <laughs> I was like, ugh. You know, I tried, I tried to be abundant with pit, my legs. Yeah, yeah, I was like, this is, <laughs> uh, why would I want to get in the battle? metaphors. Yeah, uh, appropriate. Yeah, man, woo. But uh, yeah, I'm just, man, thank you for this. Thank you, Jose. It's great to meet you. Tim, it's great to see you again. Uh, uh, we we got really close because we piled six people in a four-person rental car in Indianapolis. <laughs> I will never forget uh, being in Tim's armpit as he was driving down. Uh, but it is, it is so good to hear you guys talk with love and great affection and great hope for, for the church in the neighborhood. Mm. I am for that. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm here for that. So thank you so much for a great conversation. And we can't wait to share this with the world. One of the best ways that we can offer to see what it looks like to partner well with the neighborhood is for you to come here for a visit. We love hosting guests in historic South Atlanta. In the spring and the fall, we host a two-day immersive event called Open House. So please come, meet our team, see the work, walk our neighborhood. To register for this, go to fcsministries.org slash openhouse. Place Matters is produced by Focused Community Strategies, whose mission it is to partner with under-resourced neighborhoods to provide innovative and holistic development that produces flourishing communities and God's shalom. Place Matters is hosted by FCS's training and consulting team. If you'd like to inquire about our training and consulting services, please reach out to us via our website or find us on LinkedIn and social media. This information can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to watch these episodes, the video can be found on our YouTube channel. And if you like these episodes, please share them on social media. Your support means a lot to us. The show was edited by Tim Rhodes with music by Eric North. Special thanks to David Park, Becca Klein, and Rose Silva at FCS for their work in organizing and recording these sessions. We would like to say thanks to our partner, Lily Endowment, Inc., whose Thriving Congregations grant has made this podcast possible. Mm-hmm.